The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Coming to God's Word tonight in 2 Kings chapter 1. We've been moving through the life of Elijah, and up to this point, Elijah's ministry has been fully consumed with bringing God's word of judgment to Israel under the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. The narrative of of Israel has sort of slowed down, if you will. If you think of all of the kings that are talked about over the course of First and Second Kings. And then think of how many chapters are taken up under the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. I think God has something important to say as we see Israel plunge into the depths of idolatry and sin, and yet also see God faithfully bring his word through Elijah again and again. And as First Kings ends in the last, the last couple paragraphs of First Kings, and then the very first verse or two of Second Kings, we end on what I think is intended to be a joyful note of good news. Ahab is dead. What could be better for Israel based on the last couple of chapters? And yet, of course, this good news is immediately followed by the bad news. Ahab's son, Ahaziah, reigns in his place. And Ahaz's son is just as bad. He serves Baal. He makes Israel sin along with him just like Ahab did. And so in this this sort of pump fake of the good news that Ahab is dead and the bad news that Ahaziah is reigning, for some reason I immediately had visions of the, the beginning of the Wizard of Oz as Dorothy arrives in Munchkinland and there's great rejoicing because the Wicked Witch of the East is dead, but oh wait, then there's the wicked witch of the west and she's even worse and so we have this preparation that we have another wicked king and as this wicked king Ahaziah comes to the fore here God calls on Elijah once again the last the last mission if you will that God calls Elijah on the last thing prior to his departure in the chariot of fire is to bring God's word of judgment to confront the sin of Ahaziah so we're going to read second kings chapter 1 if you would read along with me. God's word says, After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria. And say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. And the messengers returned to the king, and he said, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, 
Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. And then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty And he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Well, again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty with his fifty, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him in his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty in his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came, and he fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, Please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Let's pray. God, this is your word, giving us a picture of you and your character. And so I pray that we would know you more, and that you would call our hearts to obedience, love, and worship of you tonight. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Ahaziah is a king who reigned for a short time, just two years, we read in 1 Kings 22. And so it's not too surprising that we don't get a whole lot of details of his reign, but the fact is the story we have read of the unfortunate failure of the fencing of his upper balcony and his reckless arrogance that gets 102 men killed and his death is all we know. It should be telling if the only thing you know about a king is his sinful action that leads to his death, and that's what we have. But even these details, these brief details, are enough to confirm the Bible's assessment of Ahaziah and his reign. 1 Kings 22:53 said this, it says, Ahaziah served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. And this story confirms that. This story highlights the sin of Ahaziah. But more than focusing on the sin of Ahaziah, this story focuses on the character of God the justice, the wrath, the mercy, and the faithfulness of God as he responds to a wicked king. And so I hope that that's what we see tonight from this story is the character of God 
as he interacts with his people. This story, I think, falls into four four key sections. If you were going to make a play here, there would be four acts. And I want to look at each of the four four events or the four acts of this, this story, if you will, and look at both what happens and then look at God's response. So let's start with Act 1. Act 1 has Ahaziah. Ahaziah, we're introduced to him at the beginning as he's falling through the lattice work of his balcony chamber. It's a fall that obviously is pretty nasty since he's laid up in bed wondering if he's going to die from it or not. But his first instinct as he faces an uncertain future in his life is to send messengers to Ekron in the uh, land of the Philistines to ask Baal whether he's going to recover or not. Now this is important to realize that this is his first response. Because when you're faced with questions of life and death, we revert to our core instincts, to our first principles. If you're, if you're standing in a room and you, out of the corner of your eye, see something flying towards your head, you immediately duck at your core instinct. If you're, you're working and you smash your finger with a hammer, you probably scream. That's your first instinct, your, your core instinct. And when you have spent your entire lifetime worshiping Baal as the only true God, and you're faced with a question of life and death, then what do you do? You hike off to the land of the Philistines to see if you can get some help from Baal. And we have to understand what's being communicated here. Baal and Ekron are not just around the corner. This is a 90-mile trip, round trip, to get from Samaria to Ekron and back. This is a serious commitment that that Ahaziah and his messengers are undertaking to try to get some information from Baal. If you're going to make this this journey, you have to be pretty certain that there are no alternatives closer by that could be of help to you. And that's where Ahaziah is. If you think back over the idolatry of the kings of Israel, I think we have a couple examples here. If you think about Solomon, Solomon was very willing to worship God. He just added a whole bunch of other idols to to his, his repertoire. And so you have Solomon worshiping this whole pantheon of gods. But the idolatry of Ahaziah is different. Ahaziah is not saying, well, maybe Yahweh. I'll try Yahweh some. If If he seems the best option, I'll try Baal. No, Ahaziah, for Ahaziah, Baal is the only option. Yahweh is completely off the table. As Dale Davis, one of the commentators, puts it, he said, Ahaziah's example is the example of a conscious decision that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is either non-existent, completely irrelevant, or totally unable to help. He's not an option, and so he's willing to take the 90-mile trip to Ekron and back. Here's Ahaziah. Maybe Yahweh doesn't exist at all, says Ahaziah. Maybe Yahweh exists, but doesn't care about us. Maybe Yahweh cares about us, but is too weak to help. Whatever it is, Ahaziah believes Yahweh is useless. And he ditches Yahweh completely in favor of Baal. But I think these are the core questions of idolatry, aren't they? Do we believe that God exists, cares about us, and is powerful enough to help? Idolatry is born out of doubting one of these things. Either we wonder whether God actually exists, or we wonder if God actually cares about us, or we wonder if God is actually able to help. 
if we put ourselves in some of the difficulties and challenges of our lives, these are the questions that sow doubt in our hearts. These are the questions that open our hearts to chase after other options. Maybe, maybe our finances are a wreck. Maybe we're overwhelmed with work. Maybe our children are completely out of control. Maybe our health is failing. Maybe we're feeling lonely and completely empty. In these moments, the question that faces our hearts is, where do we find help and hope? What are our options to try to get help in our time of need? Do we run to God, or do we frantically crisscross the map of our options, wondering or thinking that God is unable to help us, or doesn't care, or maybe he's not listening at all? That's the source of so much of our sin. And when we look at, the, look at the workings of our heart and see our quickness to run after solutions and options of this world, our quickness to run after things that, are, that we can touch, that we can feel and say, maybe I can find help there. The core questions, the core commitments of our heart and the situations of idolatry are exactly these. Do we believe that God is there? Do we believe that God cares about us? Do we believe that God is powerful to help. When we doubt any one of these things, then our response is just like Ahaziah. And what we need in the face of our idolatry, in the face of our hearts that are seeking other options because of our doubt of God, what we need is to have our wandering hearts cut short and our gaze redirected to an all-powerful God who is here, who cares, and can help. And that's what Yahweh does in this story. You notice what happens. The messengers go out from Ahaziah, but Elijah sends Elijah, sorry, Yahweh sends Elijah to intercept them. They don't even get out of Israel. And here comes Elijah and says, turn around, don't keep going. The Lord has spoken. What a great moment. Here's these men hiking after, after Baal to try to find an answer. And God breaks in and says, there's a God in Israel, and I'm going to give your master his answer. Because your master disobeyed me, because he did not look to me, the answer is not going to be a good one. But here's the question. And Elijah's key question is, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal? Can you hear the bite of that question? I am the God of Israel. I am God and God alone. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who made Israel, who's the identity of Israel. I am here. I am powerful and true. Why are you going to Baal? Why go to Baal? I have to think that behind this question has to stand the competition on Mount Carmel between Baal and Yahweh. You remember the competition, right? Baal's prophets versus Elijah. And the question was, which God is real? Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? This was Ahab's father. Ahab, Ahaziah's father. This is when the competition took place. Ahaziah was likely alive. It says all Israel was gathered there. There's a great chance that Ahaziah was at that competition. If Ahaziah wasn't standing there watching fire fall from the sky, then Ahaziah certainly heard about it. That's the kind of event that makes national news. You don't live in Israel, go through that event, and not hear about it. And so you have to hear in this question, Ahaziah, 
Do you remember Mount Carmel? Do you remember which God is God? Do you remember the futility of 400 prophets of Baal and how one prophet prayed and God demonstrated that he is God and there is no other? That has to be behind this question. And so God says, I am God. I am here. And I am going to give Ahaziah the answer to his question. And the answer is this. You will surely die. God does not tolerate idolatry. And so we glimpse his justice and his appropriate wrath in his response. But I don't think we should hear God's response as purely judgment. We also have to see God's mercy to Israel ring out in what he does here. Because you see what happens? God cuts the messengers off and doesn't let them go to Ekron to Baal. Here are the messengers of Israel. They're on their way to go to the temple of Baal. And God cuts them short and says, I'm not letting you do that. I am not going to allow you out of Israel. I'm going to send my word to intercept you. He directs Ahaziah's eyes. He directs the messenger's eyes. He directs Israel's eyes back to himself. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, Yahweh did not allow Ahaziah's idolatry to proceed in peace. He invaded his space and rubbed his face in the first commandment. I am God and I am God alone and you are going to run into that. I'm not going to allow you to proceed into your sin and peace. This commentator says, again, we see our uncomfortable God. Yahweh is furious, not tolerant. He's holy, not reassuring. He is loving, not nice. But that love goes with the fury. With his justice comes his care and his passionate love where he will not let you walk the path to idolatry easily. His mercy litters the way with roadblocks. That is a wonder considering that he detests the sin of idolatry so much. You hear the heart of this God who hates idolatry but is willing to send his prophet and his word to cut his sinful people short as they pursue the God of Baal and to redirect their eyes back to himself. This is our God. This is a God whose very justice and punishment serves a purpose not of vengeance, but to cut us off in our sin and point us back to himself. And this is the case all throughout the Old Testament. Open any book of the Old Testament. What do you hear? Open the book of Hosea, and you'll hear God saying, how can I let you go, O Israel? I'm going to hedge your way with thorns. I'm going to put roadblocks in your way so that you will turn back to me. Even in the New Testament, we hear Hebrews saying that the Lord disciplines his people for our good, that we might share in his holiness. All throughout Scripture, God punishes sin, disciplines his people. What? Why? Out of his love and care for them to direct them back to himself. And so here in this first act, as Ahaziah blazes this forward with his idolatry, we need to see both God's justice, but God's deep mercy as he shows I am God, I am here, I care, and I am powerful. This is the God that we worship. Well, God's merciful justice cuts short Ahaziah's mission and declares his coming death in in Act 1. In Act 2, Ahaziah quickly identifies this hairy guy with the belt of leather. You've got to hear Ahaziah's tone of voice. Ahaziah says, what are you guys doing back already? And they're like, well, this this guy... He, you know, 
intercepted us and told us to come back. And you have to first of all wonder, if you're messengers of King Ahaziah, you must have had a pretty intense impression of Elijah if you're going to disobey the king and obey the hairy guy with the belt instead. But they come back and, and you hear Ahaziah, what was this guy like? Who was it? And they describe him and he's like, it's Elijah. You, know, Ugh, you can hear the frustration. Let's get this guy. It's Elijah again. He did it to my father. He's doing it to me. We've got to get rid of this messenger of God once and for all. Captain of 50, get up there, arrest Elijah, bring him back to me, and we'll silence the word of God through this prophet once and for all. Now, this, act, this second act, is, as Ahaziah sends off his captains in their 50s, is an uncomfortable passage for some. And I think that there are some who read this passage and have this vision of Elijah just sort of casually sitting on a hilltop, and he's a little annoyed at these 50 guys coming up, so he's just like, eh, God, how about you just incinerate them? And fire comes down, and people are like, what kind of God is this? What kind of Elijah is this? This seems awfully capricious and cruel that these lives of these people would be zapped. But we have to read what's happening here. This is no vengeful, aloof prophet sitting on a hillside. Notice a couple of things that are going on here. First, we have to notice Ahaziah's clear intent. What is Ahaziah trying to do? He sent, you don't send a captain with 50 armed men to have sort of a peaceful escort back to the palace. You send a captain and 50 armed men to arrest someone so that you can kill them. And this isn't just any other person. This is Elijah the mouthpiece of God. And all throughout First Kings, we've seen that Elijah is the means of God's word and is identified with God's word. So Ahaziah is going to seek to arrest Elijah, to kill Elijah, and silence God's word. This is Ahaziah attacking God and God's word through Elijah. And you see the tone of the voice, too. The captain says, man of God, get down here. The king says, come. And the second time, you better obey the king. This is the king's order. Get down here right now. This is a message where Ahaziah is asserting his authority over the authority of God's prophet. The messengers realized that God's prophet had authority that was greater than the king, and they listened to him. Ahaziah is trying to reassort his authority. Look what God does. God responds By sending fire to consume 102 men. But this fire is God's answer to arrogant rebellion. And I think it accomplishes at least two things. First, this fire reminds everyone that God is God and Baal is not. Fire falls from heaven. Again, our minds have to go back to Mount Carmel. Fire fell from heaven on Mount Carmel. And what did that fire demonstrate? It demonstrated that God was God. Yahweh is the true God. He is the one who answers. What is God saying here? God is once again declaring that he is God. Ahaziah and his captains have clearly forgotten Mount Carmel. If they're here to capture, arrest, and silence Elijah, and if they're trying to go to Baal to find their answers, they've forgotten that God is God. So what does God do? He sends fire again. But the first time, they still don't get it. They still don't believe that God is God. So what does God do? He sends fire again. You see, what's happening here 
is this is not a capricious killing. It's God crying out to his people again and again. I am God. I am God. Israel, I am the true God. When will you get it? How many times will I have to send fire? But God again and again does this. Israel, I am God. And every time I send fire, I am asserting that and demonstrating that and calling you to recognize that. That's the first thing this fire does. But the second thing the fire does is it protects God's witness in God's word. Now, we only have to think back over the last 21 centuries to realize that God does not protect the physical lives of every one of his people all the time. The blood of the martyrs and the blood of the prophets can tell us that. But God is always with his people. And God always has the power to protect his people. And God always protects his witnesses when he still has a plan for them. It's not a question of his ability or his care, but only of what his perfect will is. And so even the mission field is littered with more stories of God protecting his witnesses. We could think of the story of Cornelius Martins, the Baptist preacher in Soviet Russia in 1920. He was arrested and taken to the office of the local communist boss. Martins told the man, I don't fear to die, for I shall be going home to the Lord. But you need to know that if he has decided that my hour has not come, there is nothing you can do to touch me. Enraged, the communist boss grabbed his gun and said, I will prove to you that your God will not deliver you from my hands. He lifted his revolver, pointed it at Martin's head, and his finger froze. And multiple witnesses said three times he tried to pull the trigger on that gun, and three times his finger froze. His face turned red. His body began to shake. He lowered the gun and turned to his assistant and said, What is this man here for? And the man said, He's a Christian. And can't you see that his God is fighting for him and protecting him right now? And the communist boss dismissed Martins and told him to go on his way. Or we could think of Rwanda, 1960s, a missionary hospital sitting in the midst of warring genocidal bands in the midst of the the conflict in Rwanda. And as these bands surrounded the hospital, some refugees that they were seeking to kill came to the hospital and were hiding there. Two nurses, two female Christian missionary nurses came down the hill as the bands were gathering for an attack. And one young woman told them, this is God's hospital doing God's work. You may not come up this hill. And the band said, as they they sort of shrunk back in stunned silence until one young soldier said, there is no God, ma'am. And the mob surged forward and then suddenly stopped confused and stood there. And in that moment of pause, the two missionary nurses climbed back up the hill to the hospital and immediately a torrential rain broke out, causing the entire hill to turn into a mud pit and no one could climb the hill. See, we could go on more and more of these stories. God is powerful. God is here. God cares for his people. God can protect his people whenever he desires. God does it with Elijah here in 2 Kings with fire. God has done it throughout the history of his people. And so when we see fire fall from heaven, we should hear this as both a warning and a comfort. This passage shouts again and again, God is God. God is near to us. God is powerful. It is arrogant and foolish to deny it, Ahaziah but it is so comforting and it brings full safety and assurance and peace 
to those who will believe it and trust it. That's the message shouted from act number two. We'll move on to act number three. The third move in this story comes with a third captain and his 50. Now we don't know exactly how the captain knew what happened to the previous two groups. He obviously wasn't sitting back at the station watching on CCTV to see what happened. Maybe he didn't know exactly what happened until he came on a pile of ashes. Maybe he, other witnesses from a distance told him, or maybe he could see fire falling from heaven. But clearly, this man knows that 102 men have been incinerated by the fire of God. And this captain has no idea when that fire may fall. What step will he take that will cause God's fire to fall? He doesn't know. And so the second he is able, he falls on his knees before Elijah and begs for his life to be spared. Even today, we kind of flippantly use the phrase to put the fear of God into someone. Well, this is no flippancy here. This is putting the fear of Yahweh, the God of Israel, into the heart of the third captain. And so he responds with an appropriate humility and reverence and trembling to the one who is God. And this humility and fear means that it is now safe for Elijah to go with the captain and deliver his message to Ahaziah in person. Whereas before these captains in 50s were seeking to arrest and kill him, now they don't dare lay a finger on God's prophet, the one who said, if I am a man of God, fire will come down and consume you. This is Elijah's safety now. And the humility and fear of this captain not only means it's safe for Elijah, it also means preserving the lives of 51 men. I think I think the response of this third captain and God's response, the angel of the Lord comes and says, go now with this man. Their lives are spared and your life is safe. And we see the response of God to the humble heart that trembles before God. Was this captain converted? I don't know. But this captain responded with humility and the fear of the Lord. He responded with trembling to what the power of God could do. And I think it brings us back to recognize what it means to properly fear Yahweh, our God. Maybe we ask ourselves this question, is it a good thing for us to be afraid of God? Ought we be afraid of God? Now, because of God's love in Christ, we do not need to be fearful of judgment on a minute-by-minute basis. But if we have any idea of the God we serve, then yes, we ought to respond with a deep reverence and humility and trembling because of who God is. The fear of the Lord is not just loving respect. It is actual weak need trembling. Whenever we recognize the character and the power of the almighty king of the universe who is drawn near to us, this is the God that we serve. If we think of the sheer power and glory and holiness of God, then humble awe is the only proper response. And I think this kind of God that demands a trembling fear before him means several things for us. It means that if we come arrogantly before him, then fiery judgment should be our expectation. Captain 1 and Captain 2 have demonstrated that. But it's no different for us. We don't have to be arresting God's prophet to come before God with arrogance and pride and disobedience. It means that when we sin casually, when we justify ourselves, when we ignore God's word, ignore God's worship, ignore his presence and pursue our own agenda, 
then we've ignored the God who is the God of Israel. We cannot properly be thinking of this God and ignoring him and casually standing before him as if we can pursue our own agenda at the same time. Sin and a right recognition of this kind of divine glory are incompatible with each other. And so when we see this God, it should be a motivation to flee our sin. But thinking of this kind of God should also overwhelm us with unexpected joy and thanksgiving because, brothers and sisters, we are standing here knowing what happens and unfolds in the history of God's story. We sit here from the perspective of the cross and we realize that that this just incinerating fire ought to have fallen on us as sinners, but this just incinerating fire fell on Jesus on the cross instead. And so we can look at the captain in his 50s and say, there I go, had not Christ been there first and in my place. You know, when we think of what God has done for us, this ought to fill our hearts with a joy and a gladness. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about last year we had a few children staying with us through the Safe Families program over Mother's Day. And we had promised our kids that we would take them out to eat on Mother's Day. And now we had a boatload more kids than we'd planned, but we decided to go ahead and take them out to dinner anyways, even though it was going to be a bit of a stretch financially to do that. We sat down and enjoyed the meal. And as we were getting up to leave, our waitress came and said, have a great day. A member of your church was in the corner and they paid for your meal. And I remember that moment. There was just this explosion of just humble gladness and thanks. Just this, this feeling of being blessed that, that just overwhelmed us and, and changed our day. And I thought, if that's our emotional response for someone paying 50 bucks for a meal, How much more are we to be overwhelmed with the joyful gladness and just a feeling of showered blessings poured upon us when we think of Jesus Christ who took this fire of death on our behalf and brought us to grace and salvation? I don't know how anything could give us a greater comfort and assurance than knowing that this powerful God is on our side. When we face trial or trouble or hardship, this is the God, the God who is there, the God who has promised never to leave us or forsake us. This is the God who stands by our side. Well, that's, I think, what we learn from Act 3. Lastly and briefly, Act 4. The text ends with these words. You have Elijah coming and delivering his message to Ahaziah, and then it says, So Ahaziah died. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. And I love the little word here. Focus on the really little words for a minute. The text does not say, then he died, as if Ahaziah's death was just the next thing that happened. It says, so he died. Meaning that the reason he died was because the Lord said he was going to die. The word of the Lord comes and says, you shall die. So he died. Because God's word is always fulfilled. One could paraphrase it, God said he would die, so obviously he died. Because God always keeps his word. That's who Yahweh is. He is a God who speaks and it happens. He is a God who promises and he always fulfills. He is a God whose faithfulness lasts from eternity to eternity. And that is the cornerstone 
of our hope. Dale Davis puts it this way. He says, what Yahweh says, Yahweh does. And this cuts both ways. This text implies not just destruction when Yahweh promises destruction, but also grace and hope when he promises grace and hope. God's assurances are as reliable as his judgments. The sure word of God can shield as well as shatter. It can support as well as smash. And so the question, the question is where do we stand with the word of God? In this passage is a warning and also a beautiful hope. If we do not trust and follow God through Christ Jesus, it is a terrible warning because the God we disobey and rebel against is a God who sends fire. But if we trust the God who says that he will never lose one of his sheep, that he will never leave us or forsake us, the God who says he is preparing mansions of glory for us, the God who says that you will be co-heirs with Jesus forever with me, if we trust that God and rest on him and lean on him and look to him, giving all confident expectation in what he has promised, then there's great hope because God's word is always fulfilled. And that's the message. God is God. God is near. Don't run looking for useless help. Find hope in the one who always fulfills his promises. Let's pray. God, I pray that this text would remind us who you are. Because in remembering who you are, we have great reason to run from sin and great reason to run to you and great reason for comfort and assurance and hope. What could be better than the almighty God of the universe who answers with a word, who has given promises, standing by our side. I thank you, Lord, for who you are and what that means as your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.